Hi everyone, my name is Nick Wood, Head of Investment Fund Research at Quilt Achievement, and welcome to the latest edition of The Fund Buyer, a podcast for all things related to the world of fund research. We're back after a break, and this week we have the next in our series of the Big Three interviews, featuring some of the foremost investors and experts in our industry, asking the Big Three questions in their parts of the investment world. So today we're focusing on what has been one of the breakthrough regions of the year, namely Japan, a region that at one point represented over 40% of global indices some 30 years ago, but which has seemed to have been a steady decline, at least in terms of its index weighting ever since. So I'm very pleased to be joined by Carl Vine of MG today um, and someone, dare I say, who I think can be described as a a breakthrough manager in terms of um, his increasing profile since joining MG in 2019. So thanks so much for joining us today, Carl. And um, uh, I just wanted to start by asking you what led you to a career first in asset management and, and into Japan in particular, uh, and perhaps we can then move on to sort of some of your early career highlights. But what what led you into the, uh, this uh, uh, career path? Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Nick. Uh, really appreciate it. Um, I guess you know, asset management. I think it goes back to university actually, and, and it, it's, it sounds silly, but in my first week, literally during Freshers' Week at university, I went to the careers office. Um, as you might imagine, I was the only person there. I was pretty focused early on uh, on my career, and I was at university to, you know, to get a, a better job and a better life, etc. Um, so there I was, sat in the first week, trying to read everything I could about different possible careers. Um, quite focused as I was, and I honed in. I remember um, on two different career paths. One was strategic consulting, and one was investment, and I think what drew me to both of them was the idea of variety over the course of one's career. Maybe we'll come back to that in a minute. Anyway, so what's quite amusing is that I went on to apply for internships and eventually uh, graduate jobs. I wrote dozens and dozens of letters and I didn't get a single callback for an interview from the strategic consultants. And I got called to interview for like almost every application I made for investment. So whoever was reading those applications, there was some sort of self-selection process going on. I obviously wasn't cut out to be a consultant, which as my career has progressed, I now wear with a badge of honor. but the so that's quite amusing actually that I, it was quite obvious early on that I was quite drawn to to investment. Um, anyway, the particular things that drew me to it was was yeah this point of variety, the idea that over the course of one's career you could look at a lot of different potentially countries, different economies, different companies and industries. Um, and then the second idea that I was really drawn to and I continue to be drawn to is the idea of ongoing education. You know, I feel extraordinarily lucky actually to have been in a profession where I'm required to continue to learn about you know, a broad array of, of different topics. Um, the Japan piece, you know, you asked me why Japan, um, that's probably more accident than anything else. I did study some Japanese politics when I was at, at university. And then when I got to my first job in the city uh, in the late 90s, um, I, one of the first project research projects I was given was to prepare an analysis of Japanese financial deregulation, the the Japanese Big Bang. Um, And that was just coincidence, but it kept my interest in Japan ticking along. 
And then in 1998, um, the, the PRU, who I, who I joined straight out of university, the Prudential, they decided to open an office in Japan. I put my hand up and asked if they needed anyone to, you know, do the photocopying and make coffee. And, and in 99, I moved to Tokyo and, and the, the rest is history, really. Fantastic. It always, uh, always interests me that uh, the, the the amount of investors where uh, sort of luck plays a a, a part in their, their long term career path. So I think I'm going to sort of add you to that uh, list yeah. in terms of where where you ended. Um, so I'd be great to just um, hear just a little bit about the products you're managing today, and actually more importantly, I think uh, I'm always really interested in sort of. Uh, what what investors see as as their edge, their differentiator um, uh, in their particular market. What what makes them think they can they can beat uh, Mr. Market uh, uh, long term? Yeah, yeah, good. Never an easy question. Um, well, let me outline the sort of the the, the, the funds. Um, so our Japan funds are based around our stock picking program, right? So we're trying to beat the market through stock selection and. I guess that sounds kind of obvious, but but actually I think many others really do do something different. So we're, we're not trying to make money from a style bias, whether it's growth or value or quality or whatever. Um, we're not trying to do that. We're not trying to make money from, from macro bets. Um, we're trying to find very company specific, esoteric mispricings. Importantly, where we think we've earned the right to have a differentiated perspective about the price of risk. And so our portfolio construction approach is quite specifically you know, tied to that. We're trying to beat the market with non-correlated esoteric single stock bets. And as such, we are building our portfolios in a way where our risk budget, so the amount of risk we think we need to take to deliver the, the, the required returns for clients, where that risk budget is, uh, where it consists as much as possible from only those, those things that we think we've got a differentiated perspective about where we've got a high conviction about um, and as little as possible from anything else. So when I say we have a kind of a very stock picking based approach, um, it might sound obvious, but everything we do is really tied to trying to be disciplined about that. So carve out all the things that could impact the, the portfolio about which we have no view which is most things, and then keep that risk very focused, like as laser focused as we can um, on those things that where we think we've earned the right to to out, outperform. Um, you, are, you asked about the edge piece. Um, you know, it's a tough question, really, because this is where we, we all just erect a straw man and knock them over, because I don't honestly know exactly what goes on in the in the investment teams of all of my competitors. Um, so I don't want to be disingenuous, but I would say there probably are some things um, that distinguish us at least. Uh, I think the first is our team has been together a long time. It sounds odd to say that, but you know my co-head of equities for the Asia Pacific region um, at MNG, David Parrott, we've worked together for you know 25 years. Vikas Bashad, um, senior portfolio manager in our team we've worked together for nearly 20 years and so on and so on so there's a lot of shared working history amongst the people that are in the team and we've worked together consistently and incrementally to evolve our investment program now that's not probably unique in the industry but it's i think not common particularly when it comes to to japan it means we can travel quickly as a team we're highly efficient and effective uh, as an investment team i think the second is our process Everyone talks about process, um, 
But in our case, we have been incredibly focused on trying to divine specific behaviours and protocols, things we must do and must not do before and after we commit capital, things that are designed to stack the odds in our favour of achieving the desired return outcomes. Um, so that the process is, we obviously haven't got time to go into it today. Um, you and I have discussed it many times, but there, it's it's very intentional. It's very specific around what we need to be doing on a day-to-day -day basis. So it's a very practically oriented um, process. And then the third point is really discipline and consistency. Actually, is that you know we all know how to lose weight. We we exercise more and we eat less somehow seems to be devilishly difficult however despite being so so simple and i think one of the things that we are very good at is being disciplined and consistent so we've got a process for a whole host of reasons many of them you know divine from first principles many of them evolved after having learned from mistakes um, the process is one thing you then must rinse and repeat over and over and over again and that's what we do pretty well we're disciplined and we're consistent so there's a few things there that you know potentially distinguish us or or, or maybe contribute to our so-called investment edge yeah no great thanks i get i guess uh, that that old phrase simple but not easy uh, sort of springs to mind it's, absolutely uh, <laughs> absolutely yeah <laughs> Um, so, I mean, at the sort of the top of the show, I, I sort of mentioned the, uh, I suppose, the steady decline of um, Japan, at least in terms of its index weightings. And, and um, as we move on to the, 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 uh, our big three questions today, I wonder if you could first sort of describe the opportunity in Japan today and and what you see as the, the key attractions for, for the global investor, what, what your perspective is that, um, you know, perhaps, um, perhaps others don't necessarily um, see. Yeah, well, you know, putting wearing the hat of a global investor, you know, what I find interesting about Japan is is actually kind of straightforward. Um, I think that the Japanese equity market offers a very plausible prospect of delivering double digit compound returns for many, many years to come. Right. It, it, let's just take 10 years. Right. Because God likes big round numbers. It, it, it strikes me as being incredibly plausible as a base case that over 10 years you get 13 to 15 percent compound return from the Japanese equity asset class in local currency. Maybe we'll come back to the to the FX in, in, in a moment. Um, I don't know what other asset classes uh, are going to deliver, obviously, but I would I would think looking at the history of compound returns, the different asset classes, if you could own something, whereas a base case, and of course, you know, I'm not trying to be too precise here in, in my forecasting ability, which is, you know, approximately nil. But as a plausible base case, if you think you can earn mid-teen returns for, for what I would say is a modest risk of ownership in Japan, you know, the corporate sector is not highly levered. Um, margins are not at cyclical highs. They're still relatively modest. Um, they're half of those in the US, for example, or something like that. Um, if you can... If if you can take a modest risk of ownership and deliver mid-teen returns, that has to be interesting. I would I would think ex ante. Now maybe other markets go on to, to to do better than that, other asset classes. But as a starting point, I would say that's probably quite interesting for a global asset allocator. Um, if you then lay on the fact that those returns could be turbocharged by the fact that that you're buying it today with a currency that appears to be too cheap, then it gets even more interesting. So I guess the question then becomes, OK, well, how, 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 how are we going to get kind of a mid-teen return from um, the stock market that 
that is associated with economy, which is low growth with demographics and all these other issues. Um, and I think what I would say here, first of all, is let's just pay respect to the history, which is in the last decade, that's pretty much exactly what's just happened. Right. So if we were here a decade ago talking about arbonomics and the changing nature of Japanese capitalism and all this stuff, we would have had to take a bit of a leap of faith. Right. It would have been a story based on um, when economies try to change the profit share to GDP. It's normally good news for equities, but you'd have to take a leap of faith. Well, we're 10 years into that project now. Profit share to GDP has gone up, etc. But profits have been delivered. Right. So really, my argument is to say that the mid-team compound return is going to be dominated by earnings growth, dividends and buybacks. I'm not saying that we need any re-rating of valuation at all to get there. I suspect if we do deliver another decade of double-digit earnings growth, we'll probably get a re-rating as well, but you, but you don't need it. Okay, back to the question, where do we get this earnings growth then? You know, I think the earnings growth comes from self-help. Margins are, are still low in Japan. And they're low because of the history of the corporate sector and what their job was in, in, in terms of the overall economy. That's 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 changing so radically at this point. There is so much low hanging fruit when it comes to corporate strategies, the way that companies behave. You know, we're moving away from, you know, full employment and compliance with an industrial policy as the, the driver of corporate behavior to the profit motive as a way to allocate scarce resources. That difference is just is, is massive. So I think there's a lot of scope for margins to go up. I think there's a lot of scope to to use less capital than Japan has in the past um, to deliver that earnings growth. Um, if we continue to see what we've seen in the last decade, I think it's very plausible that we will get a 10-year perspective return in the high, you know, in the double digits, maybe mid-teens, that's dominated by earnings growth, even though we've got an economy that is unlikely to be the fastest growing economy in the world in you know in the next decade so it's going to come from corporate reform and, and self-help um so i think that's quite i think that's quite exciting yeah great uh, and you mentioned currency there and i will maybe just pick you up on that you're uh, you've already mentioned you're not uh, necessarily uh, uh, uh macro forecasting isn't your um your, your forte but um the yen looks extremely weak at the moment. I just wondered if you had any yeah. particular thoughts around that one way or another in terms of, um, you know, what what what, what might change that, um, whether, whether whether you're particularly predicting that within your um, your investment thinking as well. Yeah, it's a I think this is a really tough question um, for me because I I have no confidence in my ability to predict these things. And to be clear, before I say what I'm about to say, you know, if you'd have asked me at the beginning of 2022 for for my crazy guess of what the yen would do, I would have been totally wrong. So, you know, so bear that, you know, let, put that caveat aside. Um, I agree that based on traditional metrics of values of currencies that the yen looks to be, you know, very modestly valued. Um, and I am aware of that. So I'm not forecasting anything for the FX. Um, and it and it's certainly not a bet that is embedded in the portfolio. Um, but, you know, Japan is an export rich nation and particularly stock market. And it seems to me that in 12 months time, if the yen's at 180 or 100, I, I'd, I'd be versus the dollar, I'd, I'd be surprised with neither. Um, and so I'm paying particular attention at the moment to make sure we don't have undue currency exposure in the portfolio you know i i just this the, the the range of possible outcomes 
it's always incredibly wide obviously for any metric but it it feels particularly wide because we've got this opposing kind of policy central bank policy going on japan versus the rest of the world that i assume won't continue forever so in my mind i think we need to be prepared in the portfolio for quite a, a sudden shift in the strength of the yen now maybe that doesn't happen but i don't want to get run over in the portfolio if that does happen it seems to me there's a non-trivial chance that we get a lot of currency volatility in the coming year um you know japan is seemingly listening to various observers including the, the bank of japan itself is flirting with you know putting putting an end to this 25-year period of of disinflation stroke deflation um the Bank of Japan is being cautious with its monetary policy, doesn't want to go too early. Meanwhile, we've got, you know, 30 year treasuries going through 5%. So there is, I think, quite a lot of coiled up activity in the dollar and exchange rate. And I think we just need to be aware of that as a, you know, if the yen is at 100 in a year or two or three years time, it's going to be fantastic for foreign currency denominated returns on the market. It'll probably wreak havoc for me as a stock picker in terms of intra-market behavior. And so I'm just trying to insulate the the portfolio versus its benchmark from that and just make sure that we've got other sources of esoteric um, alpha to drive excess returns. Yeah, no, great. M- makes sense. Thank you. Um, let's let's move on to uh, maybe something that is really sort of key to your um, process, which is uh, active engagement with companies um, with a view to improving shareholder returns. Uh, um, I guess uh, uh, you know, sometimes this can sort of come with some scepticism in terms of uh, sort of outcome. So it would be great just to hear how it works in practice, what what the challenges are, and and ultimately, actually, you know, just just if you could give us some examples of you know where that's resulted in better outcomes um w- within um w- within Japan within your portfolio yeah so unfortunately engagement's become a bit of a buzzword hasn't it um mm. and uh but i guess that's okay i shouldn't i, I shouldn't judge look all all, all active equity invest, uh, investors should be engaged in a dialogue with the companies they invest in so it would be unusual for for companies not to have an engagement for investors, for asset management companies to not have an engagement program. You know, there's a bare minimum that we should all be doing as stewards of capital. Um, I think we're just trying to take things a, a step further. And, and we've been working on this for some time. This is not a new a new idea that we've you know conjured up because engagement seems to be popular. Um, the way that we approach investment research is to try and truly understand how business works. And to do that, you have to sort of build an ecosystem for discovery you can't just talk to that company and think that's going to help you figure it out you've got to speak to their to state the obvious their competitors their suppliers their customers speak to the venture capital companies that are not listed but are nonetheless snapping at the heels trying to you know eat that particular company's lunch you got to speak to regulators academics so we've been building this ecosystem around the companies that we that we track and follow and you know we end up asking ourselves what would we do if we ran this business now when you've done that for 20 or 25 years you end up potentially having perspective that that can be valuable to the company so we think about engagement not as it's our job to tell companies what to do but it's our job to serve them how can we help companies become better versions of themselves that's what engagement is about for us it's I know there's an oversight aspect to stewardship and we and, and I think we do a good job at that. But beyond that, 
we are trying to help companies become better versions of themselves. We've got a really big network at M&G. Um, we invest in a lot of companies, private, public, in different parts of the world. And if we know our companies well, if we have maintained good dialogues with those companies over a long period of time, we potentially should be in a position to start connecting dots and adding value. You know, other other companies in other parts of the world that we've also got relationships with and we understand well, where an introduction should be made, maybe to make a new client relationship, a new supplier relationship, an R&D collaboration, maybe some M&A. Um, so we are taking, I, I would say, investing quite a lot of time and effort um, with the companies that we in, invest in to try and help them become better. And the the second and third round implications of that are really quite powerful. They tend to start to see you as the owner of choice, which is they want to speak to us because they want to know what we think. They might not always agree with us, and that's fine. That's just about how we conduct ourselves. And, you know, I, I, I'm finding Japanese companies incredibly robust um, and interested in, in having a, a two-way dialogue with us. Um, of course, that wouldn't have been the case 10 or 20 years ago, but but it is today. We're actually doing it. And and, and I think it's working. Um, now, I don't want to overstate the case. It's not like we suddenly turn up and we're some sort of magicians and we suggest companies do certain things and their earnings suddenly triple or something like that. But over the course of time, I think we are building, you know, a few case studies of where we are genuinely helping companies. Um, and you asked for an example. There's an example that you and I probably have talked about before, but I think we're particularly proud of, which is a com Japanese company called Sanrio. They own the character IP for Hello Kitty, which is a pretty well-known piece of character IP globally. Um, you know, it's interesting that um, since... So Hello Kitty, the, the character was created in the 1970s. Mickey Mouse was created in the 1920s. In their histories since creation, the merchandise revenue of Hello Kitty has outsold Mickey Mouse. I mean, that is pretty amazing. And when we invested um, two and a half years ago, that IP, along with a collection of other valuable IPs, I should add, was sat in a business that had an enterprise value of less than a billion dollars. So clearly something had gone wrong. and we sat with the company and asked them, frankly, asked them for permission. We said, you know, we 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 want to be shareholders. We think there's this massive opportunity. You've got this latent value, but some, if we're honest, something's not working correctly because your revenues keep declining and you're no longer making any profit at all, despite having this huge endowment of character IP. Um, it, would you let us help you to become a better version of yourselves? And Rather than just say yes or no, they intelligently asked, well, you know, what have you got to offer? Anyway, the point is that we, if I fast forward, you know, we made some introductions for that company in China and to some some companies that are involved in the Web 3.0 arena. And we made some very specific suggestions about what the company might want to consider in terms of future strategy and corporate reform. And they received those recommendations with open arms and ended up implementing most of them. And what we now see two and a half years later is the company's you know, back on track to exceed its previous historic high in terms of earnings. And I would suspect the next three years has got good prospects for, for reaching into, into new record highs for both revenues and sales. And the share price has obviously re responded accordingly. It's been, it's up you know, 5x or so. So I think there are, because of the low-hanging fruit that I spoke of, um, that we find in Japan, I spoke of that earlier, 
and and the combination of this new governance environment where companies are much more open to approaches from kind of thoughtful medium-term oriented investors like ourselves we're actually finding it's that, that our, our program of value-added shareholdership has got tremendous value actually that we can we can genuinely um, enhance either the absolute return to an investment or the probability of success for an investment we can improve that that for that outcome for our investors while simultaneously helping a company you know move to a better place right now that's very uh, very interesting um and yeah i guess sam rio has been a particularly good example just uh, if nothing else from a from a share price performance perspective yeah and you know sure. they don't all go like sanrio right mm. I, I was, it's a bit cheeky of me to pick one that that went really mm -hmm. really well it's sort of the poster child for us i suppose you know there have been other situations that have worked quite well but not as well and where maybe the and let's keep this on a no names basis but you know there are companies where i think we're winning but it's less um open-armed you know sanrio mm. deserves tremendous credit for just how willing it was to embrace change um you know some companies that process of change is a bit more painful um and so the progress is is slower so it's it's not all it's not always that straightforward um but on average i would say that we are having a lot of success in japan with our engagements um but part of the skill is knowing what what to take on and what not you know, we're not interested in street fights. We're not interested in proxy battles, um, in taking companies to court to dispossess them of assets that we think belong to us and they think belong to, to management. You know, there's, there's there's lots of that going on and there are activists that will go after that type of situation. That's fine. I think what we're trying to do is just to say, look, where do we have, where have we earned the right to a perspective that could really help a company, could add value to that company? And where can we secure an invitation for that? Um, and where we get an invite, we'll roll our sleeves up and, and, and try to work with them. I think that's, you know, bet selection is critical in Japan. Um, I can't say everything. 80% of the stocks in the Japanese market are cheap versus theoretical value. The question is then, what do you, what do, you do with that? Should we buy them all? No, you have to pick your points. And I think um, that's tr just as true for engagement as it is for, for, for any, any other form of, of stock picking in Japan. I think you've got to know where your chances of success ex ante are above some sort of threshold level. Yeah, makes sense. Great. Well, let's move on to our third um, of, of our, our big three. And, and um, uh, sort of reflecting that I think Japan still seems to fill many investors with nervousness. So um, it can be aging population, debt, deflation, um, other things to do. Um, I, I wondered what you thought overseas investors most misunderstood about investing in Japan today on the one hand. And, and actually, on the other hand, actually, what do you worry about um, when, it, when investing in Japan? What's on your um, worry list? So what do people miss about Japan? You know, I think in a way um, they sort of miss everything, um, mainly because they're not really looking, actually. You know, I think that, um, yeah, I just don't think Jap Japan's got much sort of mental real estate, actually, for global investors. And there is, you know, I think I think we're all guilty of, well, we're all guilty of living in echo chambers, particularly in, you know, in, in the modern social media world. But when I speak to people about Japan, I, I often feel that the that the 
that the emotional attachment that global investors have with with Japan is one of disappointment, where they've been disappointed by Japan. And and actually, when you at least if you go back a decade, um, in local currency terms, the, the market's done done pretty well. Um, it's not been Nasdaq, but it's done it's done pretty well. And earnings have gone up a lot. Whatever the share prices have done, they have delivered actually fundamentally some some interesting results, right? Um, the corporate sector, when I say they. So I, I think that the, I think what what's being missed here is just 10 years worth of data points, actually. I, I think no one's really looking is the point. I think anyone that spends the time looking typically gets quite excited. So I'm not saying that, you know, global investors don't get it. I just think they're just, they're just not looking. And when they, and when they dedicate some time to looking, they tend to, to get a bit more excited. For me, this is quite interesting because um, as a stock picker, I find myself in this unusual situation where the world's third biggest economy in a very large stock market, you know, five or six trillion dollars worth, um, from an active equity perspective, behaves like a cottage industry. You know, there's not that many highly tenured investment managers um, who are institutional stock pickers in Japan. And this is this is really interesting in a world where there's so much reform and corporate change. We know that markets are not very good at pricing change in any geography. Um, in Japan, that change is going on around a lot of companies that that we haven't got that many active investors looking at um, in a thoughtful in a thoughtful way. So, so yeah, I think what's being missed mostly is just there's a generation, probably because of the collapse of the bubble economy, there's a generation of investors just missing. Um, people people could afford to kind of ignore Japan for so long that it's now been ignored for a long period of time. So there's quite a lot of inefficiencies um, about the market. So I think that's a big part of the reason why so much opportunity exists, both as a stock picker and for the index overall. Um, what I would worry about. Um, I sort of worry about everything, right? We're all idiots. We don't really understand much about what's going on around us. So that 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 position just keeps me in a state of perpetual worry, actually. Um, I think I don't really worry about the demographics and I don't worry about the debt. Um, you know, the massive accumulation of debt has not stopped, you know, Western equity markets in the last couple of decades. Um, maybe that ends in tears. I don't know. Um, you know, the whole world's got a demographic problem. Um, so I'm not going to, so I worry about it. I don't worry about it unduly for Japan just because maybe they're at the, you know, the tip of the spear. I think here, here's one stat I'll give you that for me balances off the worry, the required level of worry about the demographic time bomb, as people call it in Japan. And that is Japanese labor productivity. You know, Japanese GDP could grow 50% in the next decade, 10 to 15 years, if they get the labor productivity towards the top five globally. Right? Labor productivity in Japan is like ranked 27 or 25 the last time I checked globally. It's down there with some countries you, you would not expect it to have similar labor productivity as. And that is systematically being addressed both by corporations and by government policy. Um, that is not sustainable. So the great thing is that. Other things being equal, poor demographics, not good for, for GDP growth. We, we, we all know the math, GDP, GDP growth plus productivity, you know, is trend GDP. The, the productivity piece, there's a lot of low hanging fruit. So, you know, aging population, not brilliant. Are there compensating, plausible compensating, offsetting um, 
factors at play. Yeah, definitely. The debt point, um, you know, Japan is a creditor nation. Um, the J Japanese household sector has got four times the market cap of, J of Japan's entire stock market in cash, earning zero. Um, so yes, there is a lot of na national debt. And to some extent, in some sort of Ricardian equivalence world, <laughs> actually, maybe, you know, consumer saving is rational because they're just assuming they're going to have to give it all to the government at some point. But the point is, it's not an ex a net external borrower. It's borrowed from itself. So I don't think that needs to lead to any kind of existential crisis in, in Japan. Um, so so I don't worry about the, the debt aspect. And if anything, I think for the equity market that the the household balance sheet um is it will be a net positive and we've got the new nisa accounts coming out um or the new limits taking effect from jam one um where people can triple the amount that they invest in the stock market tax-free and i suspect uh, prime minister kashida won't stop there he'll keep keep ramping those up um to mobilize some of those household savings into the stock market where they're where they're much better placed than in in zero rates so so yeah i think lots of macro things to worry about as ever for japan for any economy I, I don't necessarily look at Japan and think there's any of those factors are much more of a worry than they should be on average for for the world economy. Yeah, no, great. And I, I personally, I found it fascinating how just uh, a short period of sustained um, outperformance by Japan that seems to have got uh, half the world interested. So uh, it probably wouldn't take too much more for uh, people to take it a little bit more seriously. So, uh, but yeah, uh, yeah, I, I, I suspect so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, great. Well, um, let me finish uh, just with a couple of quick fire questions. We you know, lots of interested investors uh, here and, and always great to get sort of uh, uh, insights from from someone who's been investing for a long time. Is, is there any particular piece of investment advice you've been given that sort of stuck with you uh, long term or something you, uh, you, you, you think has been a, 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 a little bit of a guide in your career at all? I've been so many. I've been so lucky to be surrounded by some just brilliant minds in my career and had the good sense to to listen. Um, you know, there, there are probably two things that stand out to me. One is the idea of playing emotional time travel. And this came from Dave Fishwick, who runs the macro um, investing business for MNG. He was my mentor at the very beginning of my career. And he always encouraged us to try and look around the corner. And I think what he meant by that, and more specifically, he would invite team members to engage in, in what he calls emotional time travel. And so the question here is, how are you going to feel? Not what you're going to think, that's a different question. How are you going to feel in one or two years time when a, when a given scenario has unfolded? And I think the point about asking the question of how you feel rather than how you think introduces the notion of, of behavior. Um, introduces emotion as a concept to investment decision making um, which is pragmatic and realistic um, and actually it's become a critical part of our process today you know in our valuation work for companies um, we try not to get too tied up in theoretical dcf based valuations we understand how they work actually what we think our job is is to underwrite what the market will pay for an asset at a given point in the future in a different number of scenarios and what they will pay often deviates from that DCF theoretical approach. Um, and so this is where we get to express 
not just our fundament, our IQ, our fundamental understanding of a company such that we can make these different simulations, these different scenarios, but where we can flex our EQ. You know, what, in a given scenario, because the world, you know, how people feel is path dependent. So in a scenario where a company has now missed earnings, you know, in the three prospective years to come consecutively, uh, how's the market going to value those earnings then? They might end up asking for a higher risk premium, right? Because they feel a bit sulky about the fact that they've been disappointed three years in a row. And so I think that the that that invitation from from Dave Fishwick to play emotional time travel, I think, introduced me early on in my career to this concept that that markets are emotional and that that needs to be an, an important part of pragmatically speaking and practically speaking, how we think about about valuations. Um, the the second, I don't actually know if anyone said it to me specifically or I just heard it, but I think it's brilliant. And it's it's again, it's been it's, it's been important for me. And that is the idea that if you're going to panic, panic early. And I, I, I heard this early on in my career, and I think it's a really interesting concept. Um, you know, in the face of stark events, um, you know, so-called 10 standard deviation events or whatever that seem to happen far more frequently than they should. Um, you know, we often hear people say, don't panic, take a, take a step back, don't panic. Um, and usually that is the right course of action. Um, but there are moments infrequently, luckily enough, where I think panic is necessary. And to be clear, I don't mean when I say panic, I don't mean some mindless sort of headless chicken panic, but I do mean decisive, swift, aggressive action. There are occasions when we're better off doing nothing with the portfolio. And there are times when you've really got to grab the portfolio by the scruff of the neck and make decisive action. And it pays to make that call early. So yeah, I, I, I like that one. If you're going to panic, panic early. Great. So fantastic advice there. Um, let, let me finish off then with one. I'm always trying to make my uh, bookshelf look uh, more impressive for, uh, for for the Zoom calls. Um, any any particular um, book you've read that particularly stands out, investment related or, or I guess otherwise, for anything else you want to highlight? Nick, don't kill me. I've got three. I'll go really quickly. Go for it. Um, <laughs> it, it I, I, you know, it's like, what's your favourite song? I can never just give one, right? Um, <laughs> I th the first is just to prove that, you know, I'm a modern man, I cry and hold babies and I and I drink mineral water or whatever, is Eckhart Tolle, The Power of Now. Um, the message is so simple, um, but the application is so hard, just like you said earlier about investing. Um, but being in the present moment enables one to react with appropriate measure and to have the appropriate perspective. It's hard to do. It's relevant for life. It's relevant for investing. Anything that involves decision making, which is pretty much everything, um, uh, you know, being present enables one to 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 make better decisions. So, yeah, I think that's a lifelong struggle. And I think it's a, a brilliant book that I have um, been through many times, usually on Audible. It's it's easier on Audible than, than reading it. Um, and then I would recommend Living Within Limits by Garrett Harding. It's quite an old book now, but it's absolutely sensational. The footnotes alone keep you busy for a decade of your life. Um, he was a prolific writer and thinker, and this is an amazing tour de force that covers, you know, uh, economics, politics, philosophy. It's a brilliant book, Living Within Limits by Garrett Harding. And then I think I have to say this. If you have to say one, I'm going to this would be the one. Um, it's The Mystery of Banking by Murray Rothbard. And you can still, it's it's available in hard copy still. Um, he's passed now, of course. Uh, you can also get it for free on a PDF download from the Von Mises Institute. 
Um, I think this should be compulsory reading for for everyone. It should be taught to high school. It should be you know read by high school children. I think. Now he was a bit of a gold bug, um, so we can perhaps forgive him for that. But his section on the T accounts of money creation in a central banking model, I think, should be a central reading. Um, mainly because it makes no sense, <laughs> but is true. But I, I think I think it's, you know, living in a in a democracy, I think everyone should understand how money is created. Few do. And is it it's explained literally step by step in T account form in the mystery of banking. I think it's uh, it, that is a, mu a must read for for anyone who's part of an economy. So everyone. Fantastic. Three, uh, uh, three great choices there. Um, my, my son will be very excited when he gets this on his uh, his birthday list. He wasn't expecting it, but uh, as yeah. it's a central reading, we'll uh, we'll have to do it. <laughs> the, 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 the T accounts might not thrill him, but tell him it's worth it's worth persevering. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, Carl, thank you so much for talking to us today on the Fun Buy. Um, really interesting discussion, as as you and I always have. Um, we'll finish there. Um, and for those of you uh, that are listening, um, thanks as ever for tuning in and stay safe.